0: You're listening to Matt Walsh, On Demand. Jay Severin. Now, you might think that the Congress was angry about this. A lot of congressmen have found a microphone and a camera in a hurry to say, oh, we're deeply offended by this. He really should have submitted this to us first, not to the U.N. They're right, and some of them are sincere. But you know what? Most of them are liars. Most of them like this political cover. Hey, I didn't do it. UN did. Jay Severin. Weekdays, 2 to 5 p.m. Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome, welcome to the Matt Walsh Podcast. Thank you for being here thank you for listening you know people are weird people are just are just strange you know and you realize this especially when you do what i do for a living because you encounter a lot of people and it's even worse you don't encounter them in person you encounter them online where the strangeness and the weirdness of individuals is um it can oftentimes be magnified uh to the nth degree so a lot of weird and strange people out there that i uh, find myself dealing with and this kind of relates to that. So a, a, a few days, a few days ago, uh, on my Facebook, I posted a picture of my daughter, and uh, it was a nice. It's a two-year-old. My two-year-old daughter. Her name's Julia, and it's a nice, cute picture. She's in her, you know, dress, and she's standing around some flowers, and she's making this very girly, excited expression. And I posted the picture and um, I joked around saying that, you know, she gets this expression from me because oftentimes I will stand around in fields of flowers uh, giggling about things, you know, because that's, that's any, if you've ever heard me or read, read what I write, that's the first thing that you think, right? You think this is a guy who oftentimes frolics in, uh, you can picture me frolicking, right? This is a man who frolics in fields of flowers and giggles. That's what everyone thinks when they, when they uh, think of me. So I made that joke and then uh, somebody followed that up by doing a little Photoshop uh, photograph of taking one of my pictures of me smiling and superimposing it over a uh, field of flowers and then taking that quote that oftentimes I giggle in fields of flowers and making a little meme of it and I thought it was funny. So I posted the meme uh, of me giggling in a field of flowers on Facebook and a bunch of people left comments saying, oh, this is funny, you know, whatever. Um, stupid, w- which it is. Why is this in my newsfeed? Who are you? What, what is the point of the, You know, th- those kind of comments. But um, there was one in particular, and there's always someone who finds a way to make it controversial. So I got a, a comment under the picture from uh, someone named Jamie. And this is what Jamie said. Okay. Now keep in mind, this was not a political thing. This was just a picture of uh, a photoshopped picture of me laughing in a field of flowers and uh jamie said this makes me really sad because i'm sure that to your family and loved ones you are this guy in this picture giggly fun daddy but based on the things you write i cannot help but wonder if the day were ever to come when your daughter had to tell you daddy i'm a lesbian or daddy i'm actually a boy on the inside and i'm transitioning to live as a male what would she see in you then would she still see your unconditional love The silliness? The safe, giggly, fun daddy? Or would she then see what you've shown the rest of us? How do you think she'll react to your posts when she's grown up with a mind of her own? And this was someone who they saw the picture of me smiling around some flowers. And this is the first thing that they thought to respond with is, what if your daughter is a lesbian? Will you still love her? That's that, this is just how some people think. I, I mean it's like I said, it's strange, weird, right? I was thinking about this, and I decided that I wanted to respond to Jamie, not in written format because that's too much effort. but um, just to, just to say it on a podcast is a lot of easy, a lot easier. So this is what I'll say to it. you know I thought maybe, maybe this is worth actually responding to. So Jamie, um, first of all, I find it rather creepy. Some might say inappropriate. Uh, some might say profoundly disturbing that you're speculating about the sexual orientation of my two-year-old daughter Uh, still I've I've chosen to respond to you for a couple of reasons first it's a really great example of the polite this is something that I call the polite hatefulness that usually gets a pass in our society and I've been warning society about this for a long time the politely hateful people because I'm accused of being mean or rude, uh, because sometimes I, I can be aggressive in my writing, you know, on occasion I've been guilty of using compa- combative adjectives. Let's say, you know, I, I'll, I'll call something or someone dumb or evil or a liar or, uh, you know, a lobotomized schizophrenic, which, um, which is, that's what I said about Azalea Banks a, a while ago. Anyway, um. And, and so I'll use these, these, uh, these adjectives, and maybe I do get a tad overly passionate at times. Uh, maybe I, I, I go overboard. Maybe sometimes you know you don't have to call somebody dumb. but the point is, I'm upfront about those passions, even if they're overboard. Perhaps I shouldn't be insulting people. but when I feel the need, I'm honest about it. At least I insult honestly. So maybe I shouldn't be insulting you, but if I'm going to insult you, you'll know it. I'm not going to hide from it. I'm going to say, here's an insult. That's how I open up all my insults. I'm going to insult you now. That's what I say, just to make it clear. Now, but in this society, we lecture people who raise their voice or, you know, God forbid, use harsh language. Because we think the worst thing a person can do is yell and call someone stupid, even though, frankly, a lot of people are you know, if not stupid, um, uh, obtuse. But what we seem to miss is that, is that many times the rudest, most vindictive, most unkind remarks come in soft tones spoken with faux sincerity and cloaked in this kind of concern and love. So, Jamie, you don't call me names here or scream at me in capital letters, but what you do instead is much more vulgar, much more insulting. And you know, you get away with it because you don't say, you don't call me an a-hole. You don't call me dumb. But what you do is so much worse. I would prefer that you just flip me the bird rhetorically. Tell me to screw off. I'd prefer that. But instead, in your nice little pleasant way, your meek and mild way, you know, just very nicely, you 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 just so nicely insinuate that I don't love my children. You never come out and put it quite like that, but but you do say that you're sad because you're not sure if I'll always be safe and fun around my children. You say you can't help but wonder. I can't help but wonder. You know, it's passive aggressive. I can't help but wonder. I'm not I'm not accusing you of this. I just I just I'm just wondering. I'm just wondering whether you actually love your children. It's that it, and and you worry just quite innocently. You worry that that my daughter will will, quote, see what I've shown the rest of us. And you don't specify what I've shown everyone, but one can surmise that in your view, I've shown intolerance and hatred and bigotry and so on, yada, yada, yada. So it was quite the cordial way of questioning my love for and dedication to my children, a very civil method of implying that I might become abusive or unsafe If I don't agree with my children's choices, it was a very meek and mild attempt to use a lighthearted moment to spread animosity and bitterness, but cordial, civil, and meek aren't any less vicious in this case. They're just less honest. So just come out and say, I don't think you love your children. Does, does it, I, well, I can't help but wonder if maybe, you know, if your children turn out to be gay, you won't love them anymore. I can't help but wonder, you know, but I, but, and, and by the way, the, the people that do this are usually the ones that will let, that I get, they're usually the ones lecturing me about my tone and, you know, being too aggressive. While they say things that are so much worse, they just don't yell while they say them. And so suddenly it's okay. I hate that. I hate it so much. And you see, right now I'm angry. I'm saying, I hate that. I'm not saying, well, I can't help but wonder if that makes you dishonest and cowardly. I can't help but wonder. I just No, I'm saying that makes you dishonest and cowardly. I'm saying it. I'm coming out and saying it. I'm accusing you of it, okay? Now, there's a second reason I'm uh, responding to this, and, and uh, that, that uh, this tactic seems to have become a favorite debate strategy among many uh, progressives in our culture that whatever the conversation whatever principle you're espousing you are assured to hear from scores of people who want to know whether you'd still maintain that principle if x y and z difficult scenario arose so a really good example is you know we we always get this with abortion is that we're talking about abortion somebody says i believe this is a human life we shouldn't kill a human life and then the, the and then the liberal rather than addressing the crux of your point rather than addressing the thrust of it, they go right to the most extreme, most mo, uh, rarest, most difficult case. They, well, what about someone who's raped by their father? You know, w- are you still against abortion? And the answer is, well, yes, of course, I'm still against it because the reason that I'm against it is that I don't think you should kill people, okay? And the, the baby isn't any less a person just because it was conceived in such horrible circumstances. But yes, you have just you know created a situation where, you know, to... to To follow this principle would be more difficult and I would also say well now we're getting into moral uh, you know guilt territory now now we're uh, talking about well if somebody is in this difficult situation and they do the wrong thing is their moral guilt mitigated and my answer to that is yes probably but I can't speak to anyone's moral guilt because I'm not God which is why I don't do that judge the sin not the sinner I'm not talking about uh, uh, the sinner I'm just talking about the principle's The right, the wrong, the sin, the virtue. And so the wrong is to kill a baby. But your moral guilt can be mitigated by any number of circumstances. To what extent and what does that mean in the end? I don't know. I just know we have this sort of natural concept of justice that comes from natural law, that comes from God, that's instilled in our hearts. And so from that natural concept of justice, we make a distinction You know, even when we're looking at um, illegal murders, say we're looking at, okay, um, you know, even someone who uh, we make a distinction in the justice system between between uh, premeditated murder and murders of passion. So a guy walks in uh, from work and he finds his wife cheating on him and he loses it and he kills his wife. I mean, he's going to go to jail as well. He should but the justice system will probably not put him in jail for as long as or will not treat him and he certainly won't get the death penalty he won't be eligible for the death penalty probably the same way he would be if um, you know his wife had a life insurance policy that he wanted so he plotted it for 2 or 3 months and then hired someone to kill her you know when she's coming out of the grocery store one night see that we in the justice system we as a society have determined that both things are horrible both things are evil both things are wrong but we place a stiffer penalty, usually, on the person in the latter case. So that's, that's what it is. We get into moral guilt, mitigating circumstances, so on and so forth, and everything else. But that doesn't change the principle. So murder is wrong. Murder is wrong whether it's a crime of passion. Murder is wrong if it's premeditated murder. Murder is wrong if it's an abortion for convenience. Murder is wrong if it's a an abortion, you know, after a horrible situation like a rape. All of these things are wrong. The act themselves equally as wrong. But the situation surrounding it can speak to the mental state of the individual who perpetrates the act and uh, they could speak to the moral guilt and everything else. So, so it's, it's sort of irrelevant, but this is what, this is what liberals do. And when it comes to something like gay marriage, you know, you could say, um, uh, I'm against gay marriage. And then liberals will say, but what if your children are gay? And you can say, I don't think gender is fluid. And they say, but what if your children are transgender? And you can say, uh, I don't believe that humans are causing the ice caps to melt. And they'll say, but what if your children are ice caps? You'll say that's what they do. They just, well, what if your children are that thing? And my life might be more, might might, might be more complicated. My principles more difficult if my son or daughter grew up to be a homosexual, gender confused ice formation. But that doesn't, That fact doesn't disprove my principles. So if I'm saying I'm against gay marriage, and you say, "What if your children are gay?" Uh, I I think that's a a weird, strange, inappropriate question. But it's also, what difference does that make? Yes, that would create some challenges in my life. That's something I would have to deal with. Something I have to pray about. Something you know, all these things. But but that doesn't change what I'm saying. It's got nothing to do with anything, really. So if I'm right that gay marriage is uh, not just wrong but impossible. If I'm right about that, I don't become less right if, you know, the, the situation all of a sudden affects me personally. And I don't become more right. You know, it's just the rightness of what I'm saying is not affected by how, by how personally affected I am by the situation. But we have this weird belief in our culture that a, that, that a personal tie to an issue is a prerequisite before anyone can form an opinion about it. And this is why men are always told they can't have ideas about abortions. Uh, even though men from what I understand are you know usually quite involved in making babies. But it's why white people are told they can't have a perspective on affirmative action or police brutality. It, it, you know we think that like a personal bias actually makes someone a more reliable judge about the situation. But this is obviously nonsense. If anything, the person removed from the situation can be more objective and more analytical and in fact, maybe a more reliable judge in that, in that sense. That's why we don't put grieving families of murder victims on the jury during the murderer's trial. Nothing against the murder victims, but they are obviously and understandably vi- biased. So we don't put them, we might make them, a, you know, we, the, the the prosecution might put them on stand for emotional reasons. But it would be a great injustice to put them on the jury. Yes, they have a personal understanding of the issue, but it's too personal. They're prejudiced by it, obviously. So how personally affected I am by any of these issues uh, is uh, irrelevant. Now, third reason I wanted to respond is to, uh, well, to respond. And I don't want to, you know, I, I get this question so often or accusation. Well, what if your children are this? What if your children are that? Well, I, I just hear it so often that, okay, maybe I'll, maybe I'll finally answer it. And I don't want to speak in specifics. I don't want to talk about actually my own children because uh, I'm not going to involve them in this conversation. You know, I'm not going to let someone use them as a pawn in this conversation. So I'm not, I'm not talking about that, but I'll talk in general terms. We can speak in general terms about what a, what a parent should do. If a child says that he or she is gay or transgender or what have you. And I, I certainly don't have all the answers there. I don't pretend that I do, but, um, as far as gay, and we'll deal with that first because I want to spend a little more time on the other. But if a child comes out and says, you know, I'm gay, I think the first thing that a parent should do is embrace the child. You know, show him love, of course. This is an affliction in his mind, his soul, uh, an affliction that he that he certainly didn't choose. We talk so much about, do you choose to be gay? And, and well, no, you don't choose the temptation. You choose the act. Uh, you choose to identify yourself with it. So in that sense, it is a choice, but you don't choose the temptation any more than anyone chooses any temptation. And this is one thing we have to do when we're talking about, you know, homosexuality and gay marriage, you know, it's, we look at it all the time. It's like, it's this uh, mysterious thing and it's this totally different thing. And, and that's how the gay lobby wants us to look at it. It's this totally different thing from other, but it's actually, it's a sinful temptation and the homosexual act is a sin. And in that sense, it's a sin like any other. So we can understand it like we can understand any other. It's, it's different in a lot of ways. Like every, every sin is unique in its own way. But also the same in a, lot of, in a lot of ways as well. So as far as the temptation, you know, nobody sits around without any urge toward a sinful thing and thinks, I wish I had that sinful urge. Nobody does that. Nobody does that. Even someone who's not a you know, believer doesn't believe in sin. You know, if you don't have the urge to a thing, then you don't have the urge. So you probably won't won't do it. Now, I mean, there are times when you don't have the urge to do a good thing, and, and you still should, right? Um, so it doesn't mean we should always follow our urges, but the point is, even people who don't believe in God, I think generally, uh, and even if they don't believe in the concept of sin, generally they don't participate in a sin unless they feel that temptation. And if they don't feel the temptation, they generally won't try to manufacture it I wouldn't think so um, but the, but the urge ends up there you know and everyone has their own temptations their own sinful temptations and for we, have, we all have a lot of the same temptations a lot of you know we all, we've all felt the temptation to to lie right we've all felt the temptation probably to uh, gluttony uh, to sloth um, to, to wrath I mean we've all felt all the seven deadly sins we've all felt all of them and we don't choose to put them there But there can be certain temptations that we're especially afflicted with. And that temptation is there. That affliction is there. I don't know why, but it is. What you choose is whether you will act upon it, whether you will indulge it. And if you do act and indulge, the temptation is strengthened. It's fed. It fortifies in your heart. So you don't choose to put the temptation there originally. But the more you act on it, the more it's strengthened. And that is a choice that you made. So the first thing I would think is to not get angry. That your child is uh, has a temptation to be tap to be happy that he told you, but then next is to communicate the truth to this child to communicate in love, communicate that what he's feeling is a temptation, but it doesn't define him. That that he's not actually gay. He's this is not, this is not an identity that he has to that he has to uh, assume. He doesn't have to act upon it. He shouldn't act upon it. There will be no happiness in acting upon it tell him that 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 you'll help him fight this and be strong and loving but true offer guidance and then you pray of course maybe next you speak to a spiritual you know a counselor a pastor maybe you go to a you know a secular counselor you know um, although there probably aren't many that would at this point treat that uh, you know, At this point, you probably would have to go to a religious counselor. But anyway, you, know, you go out and you seek guidance outside of, uh, outside of your family at a certain point. These are all choices that have to be made. A difficult situation, but the very basic fundamental response is not a difficult one to know intellectually because it's the same basic fundamental response you'd have any time a child or anyone confides to you that they're struggling with a temptation. You don't tell them to indulge it. You don't, you don't make them comfortable in their sin, but but you don't express anger and hatred at them for it, particularly, obviously, if this is your child. And you don't want to make them run away. You don't want to make them clam up and not tell you anymore. So that's that. Now, on the other thing, uh, transgender, quote-unquote. First, I believe that transgender is a mental illness. People that believe they're transgender, uh, you know, they're gender-confused, they're mentally ill. Now, I don't know exactly how or why it develops any more than I know or anyone knows how or why any mental illness develops. I do believe that the likelihood of a child suffering from gender confusion is severely, severely mitigated if the child grows up in a stable home, is not abused, is not subjective to, to, to traumatizing things, and is, importantly, given guidance on how to be themselves. But I suppose that this isn't necessarily it's a you know, mental illness, so it's not, that, that is not a fail-safe, fail-safe plan. And this is the point. Um, and, and this is what I would do or what anyone would do if somehow, despite your best efforts, your daughter comes and says, hey, I'm a boy inside. Of course, if they're young, you know, three years old or something, uh, then you correct them. But you don't, you don't play along, certainly. But you also don't need to make it a huge deal at this point. Many young children play these games. Oh, I'm a boy or whatever. You know, it's a, it's a very common thing with kids. But if we're talking about an older kid, then again, you embrace them. You love them. You tell them that you know, you're going to, to help, help them. Um, and specifically, you're going to help them accept and love and be happy with who they are. And who they are is, is who they are. Not who their confused mind thinks they are. Your daughter says, I'm a boy inside. You say in so many words, no, honey, you're not. You're not. And that's one thing I know for sure as a parent is that you, you never go along with it, ever. Because you keep fighting for your child. You never get to a point and say, ah, oh, yeah, you're, you're a boy. You never do, because it's not a boy. And God didn't, God didn't make your daughter into your son. God gave you a daughter, and that's your daughter, and she's a woman. She's a girl, going to be a woman. And your job is to help her embrace the beauty of that, because it's such a beautiful thing. It's such a beautiful thing to either be a boy or girl, a man or woman. You know, it's a beautiful thing to, to being that identity, to being ourselves. And the worst thing in the world is to reject that identity. Or to say, I'm, I'm going to go and find a new one. Because you can. So I think as loving parents, you help them. You help them accept who they are, who they actually are. If they're a girl, you accept help them accept that they're a girl, boy, a boy. Accept the reality of themselves to understand what it means to be a boy or a girl. And I think this is what we're missing, I believe. And this is the problem. It's like we've forgotten that a child has to be taught how to be themselves, how to be their gender, how to be their sex. We forget that our our daughters have to be taught how to be women and our sons have to be taught how to be men. This is where both parents come in. This is why it's important to have uh, parents of both genders in the house. They need to see that example. But the great tragedy, I think, and again I'm not blaming every parent who ends up with a child who's gender confused because as I said you know I a it's it's a it's a mental Ill, illness, a mental issue and uh, sometimes these things can arise despite everything you've done. But I think often often the problem can be created or certainly vastly exasperated exacerbated by uh, by something the parents do or don't do. And we know this is the case because we see these stories of, you know, a child at the age of three, you know, son says, uh, oh, I'm actually a girl. I'm your daughter. And and the parents just kind of give up and they say, "Okay, well, then you're our daughter. And so that's a failure on the part of the parents. The parents have failed there. They failed their child. And now their child, who's just going through a passing phase, will grow up with this, grow up with this confusion and and this disturbance. And they have created a, a lifelong problem, probably. That's not always the case with parents, but we know that sometimes it is. And we also know just generally speaking, take, taking quote unquote transgender out of it. That I think there's this failure in our culture to understand that, you know, uh, that just very basically boys and girls, kids, they need guidance. They need to be taught how to be good people. They need to ta- be taught how to, how, to, how to be virtuous people. They need to be taught how to be themselves. And a boy is not just going to know. You can't just put him in front of a TV, essentially just abandoning him in, in, in the digital wilderness and hope that he kind of puts it all together and figures out how to be a man. No, he needs that everyday, hands-on, constant guidance saying this is how you're supposed to be a man. This is what it means to be a man. That's what he needs. And I think we see this especially with, uh, with girls too, but especially with boys. But they are kind of abandoned. They're not given that guidance. And so they turn on the TV or they listen to music or they watch a movie or whatever. um, And they kind of put together this cobbled image of manhood. This kind of cartoon image. They end up with this cartoon image. And I think you see that out there. You see it um, especially pronounced, you know, um, in both the black and white communities. So, you, t- you take these, uh, you take uh, uh, black kids growing up in the inner city, 70% of them or more growing up without fathers in the home, and they don't have male role models. They- they're not taught how to be men. It's a great tragedy. And so they watch, you know, their favorite rappers and they-, they-, they watch TV and they come up with this cartoonish image of how to be a man. And that's what, you know, you watch Jay Z or one of these rappers they're like cartoons they're giving this cartoon image of this this exaggerated ridiculous you know Kanye West or someone just this ridiculous over-the-top exaggerated thugged-out gangster you know egotistical just overcompensating nonsense and it's just it's just silly really a lot of what it is It's it's just it's just ridiculous but these these boys they don't have any other guidance so they end up with this cartoon image of manhood and that's what they become and in the white community, you have that as well. And there's a lot of blending here. You know, there's a lot of crossover. But uh, you, you have a similar thing where you, you, know, you also have an alarming number of, of white kids that are growing up in the suburbs uh, without dads in the home. Or they do have dads in the home, but the dads are you know, emotionally absent. And so they don't have that guidance. And they turn on the TV and they come up with this cartoon image of what it means to be a man. And for them, you know, if they're growing up in the suburbs, usually it's going to be slightly different. They're they're not trying to emulate thug culture usually, uh, as white kids growing up in the suburbs. But they end up with this kind of you know thing that they see on TV, which is this which is this sort of oversexed, overgrown, extended adolescent, uh, you know, frat boy number. You know, it, it just 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 um, unable to commit, uh, unintelligent, unserious, and that's the image that they have of men, because they aren't given the guidance. And you see a similar thing with men, obviously, Uh, or women, I should say. You see a similar thing with women, not taught how to be grown women, and they come up with this cartoon image of it. So I guess the real answer to the question is before you get to that point where your son comes and says, I'm a girl inside, or daughter comes and says, I'm a a boy inside, before you get to that point, I think our job from a very early age, from the very beginning, is to show them what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman. Uh, to show them, and this is part of how they learn that, is to show them how men and women are supposed to interact. You know, to show them a loving, healthy marriage between a husband and a wife. That's what we're supposed to do. That's my plan to deal with these, um, you know, possibilities. That's my plan. I'm not saying I've I've done it perfectly. Far from it. But that's that's my goal anyway. I know that that's what I should be doing. I sh- I've got a daughter and a son right now, um, and I- I've got to show my son how to be a man. And, and my wife has to show my my uh, daughter how to be a woman. And uh, we have to give them a strong and, and stable home life, which means a strong and stable marriage. And that's what we have to work towards. That's our goal. That's what that's what every day we're working on. OK. And so that's my answer. That's my answer, Jamie, to your uh, to your incredibly inappropriate uh, and off base question. OK, but well, that's going to do it for me. Um, thanks for listening, everybody. I'll talk to you next week. Akruje Salus. Godspeed.